I was definitely going to bump into those. At this time, I'd like to uh, let the kids go to Children's Church, ages 3 to 5, 3 to kindergarten. Feel free to head back for Children's Church. Join your teacher waving her hand in the back. That's Miss Chris back there, waving that hand high. Feel free to head back there, kiddos, to Children's Church. The rest of us are going to turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. We're just going to be in verses 1 through 19 of Genesis 8 as we kind of wrap up the flood story proper, and then we'll have some fallout from that in the next couple chapters. Or Sundays. We're going to be Genesis 8 this morning, verses 1 through 19. I'm reading from the NIV. And I invite you, if you are willing and able, to stand with me as we read from God's Word. Genesis 8, 1 through 19. And if you remember the context, the context is flood. Noah's in the ark with his family. The world is flooded. <laughs> Here we are, find ourselves in 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty-seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would be with us here this morning by your spirit and the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, that you would be uh, moving among us just as you sent your spirit along the waters. Uh, I pray that you would send your spirit among us 
that you would animate us, make us alive by your living word. We pray the same thing for those of our church who are gathered here, those who are gathered in churches elsewhere, all those who are part of us who aren't here, and those of us who are in the other room in children's church this morning. Our prayer is all the same, that we may see and know our Savior Jesus Christ through your word and give you praise and honor and glory, for you are the one solid rock, our Savior and our Father. We love you, Lord. Amen. When the world has been ravaged, it can be difficult to put it back together. Uh, when there has been chaos, it can be difficult to create peace and order. There may be no better example of this than the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, for those of you who know what that is. I'm no history scholar, so I may get some details wrong, but from what I understand, the Treaty of Versailles was ultimately not very effective. It was the treaty signed at the close of World War I, signed between the Western Allied Powers and Germany at the Palace of Versailles in France. In this treaty, terms were dictated for Germany rather than negotiated. And according to whoever you listen to, depending on who you listen to, Germany was dealt a harsh hand in this treaty, and on the other hand, maybe not harsh enough. Mostly at France's urging, Germany was punished with the loss of territory, forced to disarm, and forced to make significant reparations. It was hurt significantly by the treaty. At the same time, the treaty did not break up, divide, cripple, or dismantle Germany. And afterward, Germany was able to gain alliance and sympathy with surrounding nations. So what happened was it left Germany intact with power, but also hurt and bitter in anger and set the stage for a wounded but not crippled nation to strike back. Should it find a leader that could unite it? And it did. As stated by Wikipedia, the treaty's terms against Germany resulted in economic collapse and bitter resentment, which powered the rise of the Nazi party and eventually the outbreak of a second world war. The treaty failed in establishing long-term peace and order. It's a difficult thing to bring life out of chaos and peace out of war. But in the end... That is exactly God's plan. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What God's plan ultimately is to bring order and peace and life out of chaos and destruction. And that plan culminates in the end, but it really starts and it continues here as Noah and his family leave the ark. As the floodwaters recede, on the other side of God's judgment, we have God's peace and life. On the other side of destruction is recreation. To put it another way, the plan of God brings renewal after destruction. And that is always God's plan for his people and for his world and for his creation. The plan of God is always to bring renewal after destruction. We see that here. There may be times of judgment, there may be times of discipline, there may be times of destruction and death, but through it all, God is saving his people and he is recreating his world. And in your own life, there may be times of trial and destruction and it seems, where it seems like everything is going wrong and bad, but in the end, if you are God's people, this is your future and the plan he has for you, life 
and peace after times of trial, even judgment. The plan of God brings renewal after destruction. We're going to see that in three scenes. I'm just going to break up this exit from the ark in three scenes for you. In the first scene, we see that God ceases destruction. God puts an end to the destruction in verses 1 through 5. That's what the flood was. The flood was destruction on the earth. The flood was a result of sin and evil on the earth that had basically dominated the world. And God, in, uh, by way of cleansing the world and judgment upon sin, brought a great flood that destroyed everything. But now we see the waters of destruction being rolled back. After the work of judgment, the waters start to recede. God ceases destruction. Verses 1 through 5. We'll look there. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So here we are, Noah, his family, all eight of the remaining humans alive, all the animals floating on the water on top of the flood, and it says, God remembered Noah. Which is a great phrase. It does not mean that God forgot Noah. So when I go home, every day I walk through my garage, I put my keys and my wallet in the same place. This is life hack. I put it in the same place every time I come home. Why? Because I know myself. And I know if I don't do that, they're going to end up somewhere else and I'm going to lose them. And I'm going, where did I put my keys? And then I'll have to remember, well, that's where I put my keys. That's not what God is doing here with Moses. Where did that art go? Where is no? Oh, yeah. That, you know, this is not God losing his keys and then remembering, oh, there's... Moses. No. When the scripture says that God remembered somebody, what it means is God is calling back to the word that promise that he gave to that person and he's going to act on it. This is God acting on the word he gave, the promise he made. So this happens multiple places throughout scripture. It says God remembered somebody or remembered his people. In Exodus 2, what's going on in the beginning of Exodus? The people of God, Israel, are in captivity and slavery in Egypt, and under harsh treatment in Egypt. Exodus 2.24 says, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. He remembered. He remembered he had made a promise to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, that these people would be a special people, and he would settle them in the promised land. That was the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And now in Exodus 2, while they're in captivity in Egypt, it's not that God forgot that promise, but he's bringing it to mind and he's going to act upon it. So when you see God remembers, it's a clue. God's about to act on the promise he had already made. What's the promise he had made to Noah? Basically, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you through the flood. God's remembering that promise and now the waters will recede. He promised Noah that he would live through the flood, and that's what's going to happen. So God sends a wind over the earth, and that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Already we're recalling earlier words in Scripture. Genesis 1, 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and spirit and wind is the same word in Hebrew. And here God sends his wind, he sends spirit over the waters. And I don't know how the science of how evaporation works and all that, but clearly here, this is God's control over creation. And by his control, by his will, by his word, the waters of judgment recede. I've mentioned a bunch of times there are parallel flood stories in other ancient cultures, Mesopotamians and whatnot. And there's the Mesopotamian flood story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And maybe you read that somewhere in English classes. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods are not in control of the flood. Quite the opposite, they are afraid of it. So this is directly from the Epic of Gilgamesh says, the gods were frightened by the deluge. And shrinking back, they ascended to the heaven of Anu. The gods cowered like dogs, crouched against the outer wall. The gods, all humbled, sit and weep. Those are the gods, according to the Mesopotamian story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, in their response to the flood. They are afraid of it. They cower against it. This flood is more powerful than they are. That is the opposite of what we see in the biblical story of the flood. God is always in control over the flood, over the destruction, over the judgment. And he decides when it begins and when it ends and when it will recede. And right now, he is, God has decided that the waters will recede. And he decides the day from beginning to end. He's in control over it all. And there's a specific day. This destruction judgment will go no further than God wills it. And the ending of the flood is recorded very specifically. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It rained and water came forth for 40 days and the water stopped. And now at 150 days, the waters are receding and the ark lands. Now, I don't know precisely exactly where the ark landed. We know they're in the mountains of Ararat. These, this word or this place is mentioned several other times in Scripture. I'm pretty sure these mountains are maybe even this mountain is in eastern Turkey on the border of Armenia and Turkey and Iran. But you get here that this story intends to record actual history, right? Just the way you read it. We're given a specific mountain or mountain range that we still know where it is today. We might not know exactly where the ark landed, but we know the mountains. It's given a specific day on the 17th month. On the seventh month, the ark came to rest. God is in control over the whole thing specifically, and this is a historical account of God's control over the waters of judgment. And Noah and his family spent by now 150 days in that ark. 150 days trapped in there in this basket of God's salvation. But at the end, there will be an end. It's the hope I want you to focus on and zero in on as you see the waters receding. It is a promise for the rest of the time. This is God's plan that judgment will not last forever for his people and his creation. There's an end to it. God's anger won't last forever. Listen to the words of Psalm 30. 
Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. This is telling you something about who God is. And the flood tells you something about who God is. Momentary judgment. But his favor upon his people and upon his creation is eternal. There is a day coming for all of us who are his people where the anger of God or or the destruction upon sin or the trial and the judgment, all of it, will be a thing of the past. That we'll we'll think about that in the rearview mirror and forever going forward, we will only know God's favor and life and peace. That is what this promise is. The waters will recede. They will end, and one day that ark of salvation will land on dry ground, and we will have endured through trials as Noah did here. The trial ends. It's the good news of the flood story, and we may have to wait patiently for that end to come. That's what we see here uh, with Noah and his family in the second section. Noah waits patiently here to get out of the ark. Look at verses 6 through 12 and see how Noah waits patiently. Think about that. The water is starting to recede now. He's starting to see dry land, but it's not quite ready to come out. Look at verse 6. We'll see Noah waits patiently. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove again. But this time, it did not return to him. You may be familiar with the concept of a canary in the coal mine. Late 1800s, early 1900s, especially I think in England and the UK, but it, there were, when the world was going through the Industrial Revolution and being uh, built upon the power of coal and mining. And there was a lot of danger and risk associated with mining particularly from gases which might cause explosion or just poison to people. So canaries were taken in with the miners because the canaries would be affected first before humans were. And I don't know the exact visualization. I don't know if you have a traditional like, birdcage type thing, but if you look over and maybe see that canary go, that's a sign. Time to go. Uh, that was an early detection of hazard before we had electronic... You know, uh, detectors or anything like that. You just take an animal with you. That's what they're for. That's why God gave them. Animals for people. The canary would detect whether conditions were safe. That's what these birds are doing here. Right? Noah sends out birds to see are conditions safe for people. So first he sends out a raven. After 150 days, the ark landed on Ararat. And 40 days after that, okay, you do the math now, 190 days, Noah opened a window. He sent out a raven to see if the conditions were safe. And the raven kept flying back and forth. Uh, You may be reminded of launching your own birds out of the nest. As your kids grow up, they become adults, and you launch them out, and sometimes they come back. And then when conditions are finally safe enough, 
They'll stay out, right? But until then, they go back and forth. That's what the raven's doing here. It might take multiple flights, but eventually the raven stays out. We see that Noah switches birds here. He switches to a dove. Why the switch? I, I think this is why. I'm not entirely sure. But I think it's because doves are not quite as resilient as ravens are. They're smaller, more delicate birds. Can't fly as high and as far. So it tells you one thing if a raven can survive in the higher winds or uh, harsher conditions. But, but if a dove can survive, then that's even better. It's a smaller bird that doesn't fly as far. So no one sends out a dove. Dove comes back and he, you see his care. He reaches out and takes the dove in. They send that out again seven days later. This time, dove come back, comes back, still not totally dry, but dove comes back with something. An olive leaf. It tells us two things. It tells us that there's new growth. I may have talked about this before, but being from Washington State's where I grew up, I had Mount St. Helens somewhat in my backyard. In fact, I just, just occurred to me now, my parents were having a, a swimming pool dug in their backyard. I think they found ash from St. Helens, right? It just went everywhere across the world. But if you look at the before and after pictures of Mount St. Helens, what it looked like around Mount St. Helens before, trees everywhere, lush, vibrant, and after Mount St. Helens blew in 1980, just total destruction. All the great trees that were around snapped in half and fallen down and it looked like toothpicks just strewn across the, gro- across the ground. Total destruction. That's I think what it, the flood would have done to the earth. Total destruction. Wiping everything out. But here's new growth. It's not totally dead. There's new life that has sprung up as indicated by the leaf the bird has brought back. And of course this dove and this olive branch are symbolic of peace. In the ancient world, an olive branch, olive leaf was symbolic of peace. The Greek goddess Irene, Greek goddess of peace, her symbol was an olive branch. So it's telling us there's peace now. After the chaos, after the destruction, the bird comes back, showing God has brought peace upon the world. The land isn't quite ready yet because the dove did come back, so it's still looking for safe ground. So after another seven days, Noah sends out the bird again. Now, in all that, think about how patient Noah had to be. 150 days in the boat, 40 days sitting on Mount Ararat, and now multiple weeks after, sending out birds, hoping, waiting for it to be safe. That would have taken great, great patience. I don't know what it smelled like in the ark, but I imagine they were ready to get out. Imagine, all told, Noah and his family will be in the ark one year. We'll see that in the next couple verses. One year, you're only talking to seven other people, and they're your in-laws, right? 
That's what they were. I imagine a lot of them made great friends with all sorts of animals in there and probably carried on far too real conversations by the time they were done in the ark. They were ready to get out, I would imagine. But Noah has the patience. Say, we're not going until we know it's safe. We're not going until God tells us. Just as God told us when to get in the ark, God's going to tell us when to get out. There's a patience there I don't think we understand. I, was, I heard recently of, of a movie that's being currently made right, right now. It's going to release on Apple+. Plus. I can't remember the director or what the movie was about. But there's a story about this director making this movie for Apple+, Plus, the streaming service. And he wanted to include, uh, in the beginning of the movie, as an introduction to the movie, kind of an homage to an older film. I don't know which older film it was, but an homage with the lead actress just driving around a mountain and a hill for the first three minutes of the movie as the introduction. Some of you might be able to name the older movie that that features a a long winding drive around a mountain. I don't know which one it was. But that was what we wanted to feature at the beginning of the movie, this homage to an old film, actress driving around for three minutes, three-minute scene as an introduction. And the execs at Apple Plus said, no way. We can't do that. We understand what you're trying to do. We appreciate the artistic craft of it. But data tells us that people will turn off the movie in 30 seconds unless something happens. This wasn't just opinion. Data has shown if something interesting doesn't happen in the first 30 seconds of the movie, people will turn it off and go to something else. You, movie maker, have 30 seconds to grab your people or they're gone. We do not have patience. As a culture, we are hardwired or softwired, that's a word, programmed to be impatient, to want everything immediately, immediate results, immediate action. We, we don't, we're not good at having the long-term view of progress and growth and patiently planting and sowing for growth. I feel this as a... Dad, I feel this as a pastor, the impatience. How come my kids don't do immediately what I want? How come they're not getting through this stage immediately? I want them to be like 38-year-olds without any of the power. That's what I want. I want things to happen immediately in the church. Immediate growth. Immediate action. But no, we see, was patient, waiting. He serves as a good example for us. And sometimes our trials and the days of flood, quote-unquote, are going to take a long time. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been a person for a long time, you've experienced this, where you have one trial, one hard thing, hard season of life, and you're sitting there thinking, okay, good, that's the one. And now I can assume that the next season is just going to be easier. And then you get to the next season and you go, oh no, my plan didn't work out. There's another trial and another hard day coming. And they go, surely this will be the end. And then another hard season comes. So pretty soon you've gone months and years of just difficulty and hardness and you're wondering, what is going on? This is not what I anticipated. Lord, where are you? This was supposed to get easier. It's supposed to be like cycles of life, right? Am I supposed to move on? I mean, Maggie and I had this conversation recently. It just seems like after a couple of years, we just want like a win, a good thing to happen. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe I'm alone. You just go through seasons where it just seems like it's not getting any easier, and I don't understand why. That's life, and that is especially the Christian life, where God is not just making you comfortable, but he has a purpose, actually, to grow you and mold you into the image of Christ, and that doesn't happen without hard seasons. 
But we see here in Noah, here's an example for us, a model that after the hard season, after the season of destruction, the season of trial, the waters do recede and eventually you will step out on dry ground. It'll happen. If you trust in the Lord, hang with him, keep sending out the doves. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not sure what that's a metaphor for. I don't know what that means. But but just go with me. Keep trusting in the Lord and knowing that he will remember his word, remember his promise of salvation. He will not leave you floating on the waters forever. He will look down and remember and set you on dry ground. And he will bring renewal and new life. That's what happens, and that's God's purpose in verses 13 through 19. In these verses, God brings them out, and he promises, he assures renewal. God assures renewal, verse 13 through 19. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife with his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, Everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Noah entered the ark, his 600th year in the second month. Noah's family leave the ark in his 601st year in the second month. One year in the ark together. Now, finally, the ground is completely dry and God calls Noah out. I can't help but be reminded of Jesus calling Lazarus out. John records, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come outside. Lazarus was dead, but Jesus shouts, come out. Noah's there in his coffin of the ark. God says, Noah, come out. It's time to live. I'm going to practice a little speculation for a moment. There's something interesting here that I want to point out to you. When God calls out Noah and his family, I think there's something interesting in just the ordering of the words. It says, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and their wives. Now, why is that interesting? Because if you've really been paying attention throughout this story, and even in the next time Noah and his family are mentioned, the ordering of the people is different. In all the other places where it talks about Noah and his family, it says, Noah and your son and your wife and your son's wives. Like the men and women are separated like an old Mennonite church, right? Noah and your son and your wife and your son's wives, they're separated. Now, look back at verse 13. How does God talk about them? Come out of the ark, Noah, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. It's almost like God's saying, I want you to be together now. I think there is purpose in that. In fact, ancient commentators took that a step further, and they said, some theorized that during the year in the ark, 
that all the couples remained abstinent. Because that year in the ark was a time of limbo where there was to be no creation going forward. So they were separated for a time, but now they're coming out of the ark, that period is over. That's too much speculation for me. I don't know if they were totally absent during that time or whatever, but it is clear in the way it's worded that God is speaking to the couples now as together. Noah, you and your wife, your sons and their wives, come out with each other. And there's a point in that. There's a purpose that God has for his people and his creation, and the purpose is multiplication. Be fruitful, multiply. It should sound familiar to us, right? It was the original mandate given to Adam and Eve, the mandate given to God's creation, his image bearers, and all of the animals. Fill the earth. That is your role. That is God's purpose for you. You are to go out and fill the earth. So Noah doesn't just leave the ark. He leaves the ark with purpose. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Maybe you say for the same role. But why do you... Get out of bed. What's your purpose in getting out of the bed in the morning? We get out of bed because we have a purpose. Something drives us. Something motivates us. We get out of bed to love our families, to provide for our families, to love our neighbors, to go to work, to enjoy leisure activities, to worship together, to spread the gospel. We have some reason for getting out of bed every morning. We have a purpose. And if you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning, it may be that you're not in touch with whatever that purpose is. There's an aspect of depression where it's just, I don't know what my purpose is, or I don't like it, I don't, I don't want to do anything. You have trouble tapping into the purpose. But we, we get out of bed because we have a purpose. And Noah here is going to get out of the ark and all the animals with him because they have a purpose, they have a mission and a mandate that God has given them. And God wants his creation filled with glory and with life. And he will make sure it happens has always been and always will be God's plan to fill his creation with life. He's insistent on this purpose and this plan. Even through destruction, this doesn't change. He hasn't given up on his creation. And he won't. This is also why, incidentally, and why I'm convinced dogs are in heaven. Right? I don't know about your dog. I can't say specific dogs, but dogs, maybe cats, animals will be in heaven. Why? Because God is pretty consistent and insistent on this plan that through it all, he's going to fill his creation with life, with his image bearers, with the animals he has given to them for dominion. We should be comforted by this. This mandate to multiply and fill is a mandate that never changes with God. And it's a sign, uh, a promise, that life will win in the end. Maybe we take that truth for granted, and we assume it, and that's fine. But every once in a while, it's good to reflect on this comforting truth that we know how the story ends and it will not end in judgment and death for God's people and God's creation. That no matter what happens, we have this promise that it will end in life. 
that God's plan for you, if you are in Christ, if you are his person, God's plan for you is renewal. It is not death, it is renewal. And that is renewal for this life and renewal for the next life. That in this life, there's life after the flood. There are steps on the solid ground. There's grace in the midst of sin. Even if you are the one who makes a mess of your life, if you are the one who destroys your life and you suffer the consequences for it, if you are in Christ, there is renewal for you, not just future, but now as well. There can be change for you. There can be renewal. There can be change of direction. You can walk in his ways. You can find life and peace and rest in him. You can have new life in Christ, a promise for today, not just the future. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know this verse. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That does not say, if you trust in Christ, someday you will be a new creation. That's not just a future promise. That's a present promise. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That's a promise for today. The old has passed away. The new has come. So today you can be made new. So I say to you, Christian, say to you, anybody who's listening, if you are in Jesus Christ, your sins can be put away. You can actually change. You are not stuck in Christ. You can change. I will go to my grave believing that people can change because the gospel demands it and God promises it. You are not hopeless. Your marriage isn't hopeless. Your kids are not hopeless. Your witness in this world is not hopeless because God constantly promises and makes renewal. And that renewal is not just a promise for now. It is also a promise for the future. It is a both and. We cited it in Sunday school this morning, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words... If you're in Christ, you will be made totally new and perfected in the end. There are certain scenes in the Bible I wish I could see firsthand. I don't know if you have those. As you read through your scripture, you say, I'd love to just see what that was like. Chariots of fire. Elijah. I would love to have seen that with my own eyes. Um, Parting of the Red Sea. I'd like to see that, not, not just in movie form, but in reality, what did that look like? The transfiguration of Jesus Christ. The sons of Sceva, when they got their tails whipped by the demon-possessed guy, I would have loved to have seen that up close. What was that like? This stepping out of the ark onto dry ground, I would have loved to have been there to see what that was like. What, what the world looked like? What was that mix of destruction but also new life popping up? How much did no one in his family have to shield their eyes from the sun, which probably shined a little bit harsher and brighter after that water covering came down? What was that like? I don't know, but I'm excited because we'll have a similar experience. One day, don't know exactly how it all works out, I don't know when, but one day, if you are in Christ, you and I will walk out onto a renewed creation. 
walk out into a world reborn, made new, what will that day be like? I don't know, but I'm excited for it. To walk out on completely solid, dry, perfected, made new ground. God will remember us. He assures, he promises renewal. It's his plan to bring it. How do we live until then? Here's my final word for us. Until that day when we step out by the grace of God and Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection, that he didn't stay dead, but he rose again to bring new life because of God's work and Christ's work on our behalf, we'll step out into a newly perfected life how are we to live until that day? And Peter tells us, looking back on the flood, he looks forward to the new creation. And listen to these words as we close from the Apostle Peter in Second Peter chapter 3. He says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? It's a good question. Knowing that this world is going to burn and be made new, how should you live? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Scripture believes in global warming. FYI. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. There's the exhortation. This world as we know it is coming to an end. In Christ, just as Noah will be carried into a new world, a recreated world. How do we live till then? Be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. And that's my prayer for all of us, that we would be at peace with God, awaiting coming renewal. Would you pray with me? My Father and God, we thank you this morning for good news, for the good news we see in Noah and his family, that you brought them through destruction and judgment and brought them into new life and will fill this world with your glory, with your creation, your people. We look forward to the final day when everything will be made new. Help us to patiently endure the trial until then, to trust in you, to trust in Jesus Christ, to know our salvation is in him and in him alone. And one day, finally, you'll set our feet upon solid ground in your love and your peace and grace forever. We praise your name until then and into eternity. Amen.